On November 18, 2003, a young man exits a Seoul subway station and despite the crisp winter air, begins his hunt. He's searching for something in particular, a sign that the area is wealthy. Usually that would be indicated by having a church nearby. But this time the man notices a small police station in a secluded alleyway and he decides that he's found the perfect spot to carry out his plan. You see, the man isn't looking to break into a wealthy home and rob the owners, no. He's looking to commit murder. And the target of his crimes are the rich and wealthy of Seoul's more affluent districts. Having a police station nearby simply means that the people in the area will be complacent, that they'll think that they're safe, and that will make his plan all the more satisfying. He finds a suitable house and sits back and watches. He sees that the house is surrounded by high walls. That will make it harder to get in, but it will also help hide what is happening inside. After some time, he decides to go in for a closer look. He hears a baby crying from inside the house and now knows that someone is home. He slips on a pair of gloves and climbs over the wall. He sneaks in through the front door and heads straight upstairs. After a brief search, it's clear that nobody's on the second floor, so he turns around and heads back downstairs. At this point, he's confronted by a woman in her mid-50s. Startled, she asks who he is and what he's doing there. Immediately, the man pulls out a knife and forces the woman, later identified as the housekeeper, into the master bedroom. Inside the bedroom, they find the 87-year-old male owner of the house. The intruder immediately smashes in the old man's head with a hammer, killing him instantly. The housekeeper rushes to pick up the crying baby, who must have also been sleeping in the same room as the old man, and does her best to protect the child. But the intruder snatches the baby away, lays it down on the sofa and covers the child with a blanket. He then turns his attention back to the housekeeper and raising his hammer, he bludgeons the woman to death. Looking around the blood-splattered room, the man then spies a safe. He doesn't normally steal from his murder scenes, but the safe has piqued his interest. First, he tries using a golf club to smash open the safe, but when that doesn't work, he tries a pair of gardening shears. They're of no use and the man accidentally cuts himself. Concerned that the police will be able to use his blood as evidence and with no time to clean up the scene, the intruder decides his best course of action is to burn the house to the ground. He starts a small fire in the master bedroom and exits the house. He watches from across the street to make sure that the house does actually burn down. But it doesn't and after 30 minutes, another woman walks up to the house and goes through the front door. Unable to confirm that the evidence has been burned and knowing that the woman will immediately call the police, the man quickly leaves and prays he's gotten away with his murder. Luckily for him, but unfortunately for the victims, this time he has gotten away with it and it won't be until he commits another 11 murders and there's a botched police investigation that the man will finally be caught and identified as Yu Yong-chul, dubbed by the public as the Korean cannibal.
despite what the South Korean film industry might have us believe with movies like I Saw the Devil, Bluebeard and Memoir of a Murderer, Korea hasn't actually had all that many recorded serial killer cases. That's why when word got out in 2004 that a serial murderer had killed over 20 people, the country was in shock. As the details of the case slowly began to come forward, the public became more and more interested. Not only had this Yu Yongchul managed to kill such a high number of people, but the police had actually arrested him once before, but let him escape. And even more chilling was the fact that Yu had reportedly eaten parts of his victims. Because there were so many shocking aspects to the Korean cannibal murder spree, one thing is often overlooked, and to me this is the most interesting part of the case. Yu is a rare example of a killer whose motives and MO adapted and evolved as his personal circumstances changed. Today, Yu is remembered as a cannibal and a killer of prostitutes, but it didn't start out that way. Yu was born on April 18, 1970, into a tough blue-collar family that hadn't expected him and didn't really want him. In his later life, his grandparents would tell him that they had even considered killing him to avoid having to look after him. As a young child, he spent most of his time around his father, an ex-soldier surviving off his meagre savings in an area so poor they had no running water or electricity. Later, when Yu began school, he did go back to live with his mother and things did get a little better. Yu did well in his studies. However, he was still very poor. He could barely even afford lunch. The meagre meals that he took to school every day led to him being teased quite often. Worse still, it was around this time that Yu began to suffer blackouts. It's never been made clear whether this was due to his poor diet or whether in fact he was suffering from epilepsy. By 1991, Yu has left school, gotten married and had a son. By most accounts, he cared deeply for his family, especially his son. But soon money would become an issue in his life once again. His landlord raised his rent and with a new family to care for, Yu despaired. He then turns to crime, mainly theft, to support his family. And over the next few years, Yu is in and out of prison for things like burglary, fraud and identity theft. Then in 1995, something changes. Yu begins selling child pornography. When he's caught, he's fined and given just two years jail time. Three years after he's released for this, he's arrested again and this time it's for raping a minor. This would prove to be the turning point for Yu. In 2000, he's handed a paltry three and a half year sentence for the rape of a minor. And while he's serving his sentence, his wife decides she's had enough and files for divorce. Yu is released from prison on September 11, 2003 and without a family to return home to, Yu decides to turn to murder. Less than two weeks after his release, Yu is standing in an upmarket district of Seoul. He's searching for a church, something that would indicate that this is a wealthy area and there are wealthy people nearby. He finds what he's looking for and creeps into the house and waits in the front garden. He watches the house for around 10 minutes and discovers that an elderly couple lives there and that they're home alone. He sneaks into the house and begins by attacking the 72-year-old husband, a professor at a nearby university. Yu pulls out his knife and proceeds to stab the man in the throat until he's dead. When the wife walks into the room and begins screaming, perhaps because this is his first murder and he's worried that people were here, Yu tries to calm her down. But when that doesn't work, he bashes her skull in with a hammer. 
After he's sure that they're both dead, he locks the bedroom door and leaves the house. Once he's outside, however, Yu realizes his mistake. He's left the knife inside the locked bedroom and it has his fingerprints all over it. He heads back into the house to retrieve the knife, but this time he has to kick in the locked bedroom door. And this leaves a footprint, so Yu now has to do a cleanup of the crime scene. He wipes the footprint off the door, ransacks the place to make it look like a robbery, and then he leaves. Interestingly though, Yu never actually steals anything, he just wants it to look like a burglary gone wrong. Yu was only ever really there for the murder. In total, Yu kills eight people in this manner. He would track down wealthy, elderly couples and beat them to death in their own homes. In each murder, he would never take anything. Yu wasn't interested in becoming rich or stealing anymore. He had nothing to live for. His family had left him and Yu himself believed that his health was failing him. His father and brother had both died due to issues with mental health and Yu felt that a similar fate would befall him. So, in the time that he had left, he wanted revenge, to strike out against the rich and successful, those he was jealous of and deemed responsible for his own unfortunate circumstances. Prior to his first murder, Yu claims that he had thought about killing his ex-wife, but had decided against it because of concerns for his son. Instead, at the time, he began directing his anger towards wealthy people but Yu was about to undergo yet another change. At some point during his initial crime spree, Yu begins seeing a phone sex worker who also worked as a masseuse. As the relationship progressed, Yu became more and more smitten and to the point that he decided he would propose to her. However, somehow this woman had managed to discover a little bit about Yu's criminal past and she flatly turns him down. At this point, Yu is crushed and from now on, he vows to take revenge against all women for the pain that they have caused him. This is the point where Yu completely changes. He's no longer interested in breaking into homes and punishing the rich. From here on out, all of his anger and rage is directed towards vulnerable women, mostly sex workers. And even the way that he kills and the way that he disposes of the bodies changes. Before I get into that, there is one murder I came across during my research that is quite difficult to explain. It's only mentioned in a handful of sources and goes completely against all of Yu's previous actions, but I do think it's worth covering. Supposedly, in early 2004, Yu purchases some Viagra from a shady vendor at the Goblin Market in Seoul. A few days later, he returns brandishing a fake police ID, trying to solicit a bribe from the vendor. Unimpressed, this vendor threatens to contact the real police. There's an altercation, and that ends with this vendor handcuffed in his own van and Yu driving to a quiet hospital car park. There, Yu kills the vendor before driving to another location 25 kilometers away. He stops at an abandoned petrol station and saws off the vendor's hands, puts them in a plastic bag and throws them into the sea. He then sets the van and the vendor's body on fire before leaving the scene. As I mentioned, this murder is not widely covered and it's difficult to substantiate, especially as later Yu admits and then recounts to so many murders it's hard to keep track. But if it's true, it's very odd behavior. While all of Yu's other murders have centered around anger and revenge, this is mostly in the wider, more abstract sense. Yes, this vendor had made Yu angry, but he wasn't rich and he wasn't a woman that could hurt him emotionally. It seemed very out of character for Yu. This crime would also mark the first time that you would switch from simple murder to dismemberment and disposal.
It seems that Yu had gotten a taste for a more hands-on approach to getting rid of his victims after the murder of the Goblin Market vendor. From then on out, he ramped up the frequency of his kills, averaging more than one a month. And with the increased body count, Yu knew that he needed to get rid of the evidence. Each of his subsequent murders was nearly identical. On the night of each murder, he would make a call to a phone sex worker and eventually convince them to go to his place where they would be paid for their services. Once they arrived at the apartment, he would wait outside the bathroom as they freshened up and when they came out, he would beat them in the head with a hammer. He developed a system. First he would remove the head and then he would shave off the fingertips. He was incredibly cautious. He didn't want any of the victims identified. In fact, he says he never had sex with any of the victims for fear of leaving DNA traces. Once the victim's fingerprints were removed, you would then get started on chopping up the rest of the body. This would take him hours, and his neighbours say that they would hear running water from his apartment late into the night. In total, he murdered 11 women in this way, and each of them was buried near Bongwon Temple in a somewhat secluded woodland area. Each of the bodies would require two trips to bury, and the best he could do was very shallow graves. You actually had to mark the individual burial sites to avoid burying the bodies in the same spot. Despite his huge body count, Yu wasn't even on the police's radar. The house murders and the prostitute killings certainly hadn't been connected and the police weren't in a rush to investigate the disappearance of sex workers. But as fate would have it, Yu was about to slip up. Much like the case of the China monster killer, Yu was about to be caught completely by accident. But the Korean cops weren't as lucky as the Chinese police. On July 15th, Yu is arrested for beating a prostitute at a love hotel. The police had no idea that they had actually captured a killer. They thought that this was just a typical petty criminal. So when Yu pretended to have a leg problem and feigned an epileptic attack, police took sympathy on him and actually uncuffed Yu during the interrogation. Then, when they weren't paying attention, Yu escapes. Yu wasn't stupid. After this, he knew it was only a matter of time before the police tracked him down and his killing spree would end. His first course of action was to visit his mother. He told her he wanted to die. They cried together and Yu left. But he wasn't trying to escape. He'd made up his mind. He would kill as many people as possible before he was caught. And so that very night, just hours after escaping from police custody, he plans his next murder. He picks up his mobile phone and he makes a call. Meanwhile, the pimps in Seoul had noticed that someone was killing their women. And while the police were busy letting the killer go, they were figuring out a way to catch the person responsible. Eventually, they figured out that women who received a call from one phone number in particular didn't return after they'd been to visit the client. In the early hours of July 16th, one of the pimps receives a call from this mysterious number. Together, this collective of pimps sends a girl to meet with the caller while they follow behind. They also contact a police officer to help them arrest the perpetrator once they catch him. But the caller is suspicious. He makes the call girl follow a number of detours before he finally appears in a dimly lit alley. The gang of men following the call girl identify the caller by ringing the cell phone and then they rush to hold him down. The gang's leader asks him just one question. Are you Yu Yongchul? Twelve hours after his original arrest for a misdemeanor, Yu is back in police custody, but this time it's for murder and he confesses to everything. 
His killing spree now at an end, Yu cooperates with the police fully, but that doesn't mean that things go smoothly. Initially, he confesses to 19 murders, but that number then jumps to 26 when Yu admits to killing to some other people outside of Seoul that weren't in keeping with his usual pattern of wealthy pensioners and prostitutes. He also claims to have stabbed a woman outside a clothing store because he believed that she was a prostitute. She wasn't. But police are never able to prove this murder. But it does lead to one of the most controversial acts in an already extremely controversial case. One time when Yu is being escorted by police to the courthouse, an elderly woman holding an umbrella, the mother of the girl stabbed to death outside the clothing store, approaches the group screaming that if the police had done a better job, her daughter would still be alive. In response to this, one of the officers escorting Yu kicks the woman in the chest, knocking her down. This incident was actually caught on camera and played out all over the media as proof that the police were incompetent. And to make matters worse, the police response to this was to say that the police had been trying to use his feet to restrain the woman. The rest of the aftermath wasn't much better. Just days after the story broke, fan clubs started popping up. An online group calling itself the coolest murderer Yu Yong Chul fan cafe appeared online and this divided the public even further. It actually started a witch hunt with internet users demanding that the site's founder be named and punished. Then, a month after Yu's arrest, he makes an even more shocking admission. He tells police investigators that he had actually eaten the flesh of some of his victims. It was his belief that by eating some of their organs that he would be able to feel refreshed and invigorated. No evidence was ever recovered to prove this, but it didn't stop the public handing him the moniker of the Korean cannibal. And then the trial started. Yu first appears in court on September 6th, 2004. He immediately refuses to defend himself, apologizes to the victim's families, and declares that he's going to boycott the entire trial. Unfortunately for him, the justice system doesn't work like that, and two weeks later, he's forced to return to trial. Angry at being forced to act against his will, Yu actually tries to attack the three presiding judges and recounts his previous statement and claims that he's innocent. He then disrupts the next court date by attempting suicide and the date after that, he attacks someone for cursing him. In the end, they have Yu sign a statement saying that he won't disrupt the court sessions anymore, although I'm not sure how this is supposed to help. During the trial, the prosecution tries to paint a picture of Yu as someone with a history of mental illness, looking to vent his anger on a society that's turned their back on him. They claim that had he not been caught, he would have continued to kill indefinitely. And this is something that Yu has never denied. They then went on to try and prove that the fact that he never tried to steal from the houses of his victims underscored his motive of hatred towards a social system in which the rich get richer at the expense of the poor. To back this up, when the forensic examiner took the stand, they exclaimed, how could a human being be so evil? That her conclusion from the autopsy and from looking at the victim's mutilated bodies was that this wasn't just any kind of murder, this was done out of pure anger and rage. The police investigation of Yu's apartment seemed to back up this image of someone who is angry and violent and has a hatred towards society. When they investigated his apartment, they found hundreds of new drawings of women and a catalogue filled with pictures of luxury items that the prosecutors used to further imply Yu's hatred of the wealthy. They also found three DVDs, the American films Normal Life and Very Bad Things, 
both about crime and also the Korean serial killer movie, Public Enemy. But there were some things in the apartment that painted a somewhat contradictory image of Yu. One of the things that the police noted was that his tidy room and well-ordered clothing were nothing like the room of a violent serial killer. They also discovered colouring books containing his son's artwork and even plans for him and his son to take a family holiday where Yu had written out a precise budget for the trip. In the end, obviously this is not enough to get Yu off of murder, but it's interesting to see another side of Korea's most feared serial killer. Despite all of this fear and anger towards Yu, there was one man that would stand up and help him. He secured the services of a defense lawyer that took his case in part to fight against what was certainly going to be the death penalty. But this lawyer did his best to paint Yu in a more sympathetic light. He claimed that Yu deeply regretted what he did, that he had wanted to make a more sincere apology, but that the police had banned him from speaking, poking his ribs to ensure his silence during press events. Because of this, he knew that in the media, he appeared as if he shamelessly didn't regret his crimes, and this was something that Yu felt sorry for. The lawyer also made a complaint to the Human Rights Commission claiming that Yu had been held in solitary confinement, tied in chains so that he couldn't use the toilet, and was under 24-hour surveillance. These claims, however, were met by deaf ears. In the end, despite the love that he had for his son, despite the lawyer trying to paint him in a more sympathetic light, and despite all of the treatment that he received in police custody, there was no pity to be had for Yu. Prosecutors requested the death penalty, and on the 13th of September 2004, Yu Yongchul was sentenced to death for 20 counts of murder. Upon hearing this verdict, Yu actually thanked the court, saying, My actions can't be justified, but if we live in a society where people like me can live a good life, there will never be another Yu Yongchul. Despite still having the death sentence, it's not been carried out in South Korea since 1997, so today, Yu remains in Seoul Detention Center. Prior to this case, there had been widespread calls to abolish the death penalty. However, upon hearing of his crimes, support has steadily grown stronger, although the sentence is yet to be carried out. Yu's case also has the distinction of helping the police to implement a proper DNA databank to help track down and connect criminals to ongoing cases, although that didn't happen until 2010, six years after the Korean cannibal was finally caught. And that's it for this episode of Memories of Murder, a fortnightly podcast about the most shocking crimes from across Asia. If you enjoyed hearing about the Korean cannibal, I highly recommend you check out the 2008 South Korean movie, The Chaser. It's based on used crimes and does an excellent job of highlighting just how poorly the police handled the investigation. I would also like to say again that your feedback would be greatly appreciated. Is the show too short? Is there a crime that you'd like covered? Have I gotten any of the facts wrong? Or would you just like to hear more about the historical context of the crimes and countries in which these cases took place? All of this would, of course, help me to improve the show. But if you think the show is fine as it is, your reviews on iTunes or social media would really help bring new listeners to the podcast. Remember, you can find Memories of Murder on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, and all of the places where people hunt down their podcasts. Once again, thank you for listening. And remember, don't have nightmares.